Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos and in this podcast series I talk to some of the world's leading experts to better understand how new technologies and ideas can shape our future. In today's episode, I talk to Dr. Murali Doraiswamy, one of the top experts globally in brain health and successful aging. Murali is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Duke Institute for Brain Sciences and the co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Neurotechnologies and Brain Science. Very often we hear and read about scientific breakthroughs in neuroscience and our understanding of the brain. Uh, how important are these discoveries? Well, there have been some very exciting breakthroughs in brain science. And I think brain science is really going to be at the center of the next digital industrial revolution. Uh, there are two major areas that I think brain science will benefit us. One is, of course, uh, in terms of helping us in terms of neurological and psychiatric disorders. Uh, neurological and psychiatric disorders are the biggest cause of disability worldwide. And amongst those two conditions, depression and dementia take a huge toll on society. The second area that brain science and brain technologies are going to really revolutionize society is in areas outside of health. And these are areas that are very broad, and they range from artificial intelligence to robotics to prosthetics to helping us uh, in decision science. So I think there is a very, very broad scope for neuroscience uh, in the fourth industrial revolution. How much have we progressed in reality in understanding how the brain works? Well, the brain is still the final frontier. So we, of course, have not fully figured out how the brain works um, at a systems level or at the molecular level. But there have been tremendous uh, advances made in understanding the machinery of the brain, in being able to visualize it at a, a much higher resolution than was possible, say, even 10 or 15 years ago. We've also created uh, really good models for studying various brain systems and diseases. For example, just last year uh, alone, there are new brain imaging techniques that have been introduced that allow very high resolution uh, imaging of uh, brain circuits. There is also a disease in a dish model that was uh, launched to study diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. So you can, for example, take stem cells uh, from a patient's skin, culture them, and sort of program them to becoming neurons in a dish. And then these neurons are the neurons from the very same patient who has a disease. So you can now study these particular neurons uh, in a 3D model in a dish to see how they would have worked in the person's brain. So that kind of a laboratory advance allows us to rapidly test and screen drugs at a pace that's much faster than what was possible before. So there's a wide, wide range of advances that have occurred in brain science, ranging from new brain imaging modalities, new brain stimulation technologies, new ways of delivering drugs into the brain, new targeted antibodies to specifically target focal areas of the brain and focal proteins in the brain. There are also, as I mentioned, these new uh, laboratory models uh, of studying diseases. So when you put all these together, I think the pace of science is advancing much more faster than it ever has. Where will we see the impact of these discoveries in the next 10 to 15 years then? Uh, will we see a world with almost no mental disorders? 
Well, the hope is that in the next 10 years, we will definitely have much greater, deeper insights into a number of diseases such as uh, Alzheimer's disease, depression, and we will definitely have uh, better uh, disease-modifying treatments. I cannot promise that uh, in the next 10 years that we are going to cure uh, depression or cure schizophrenia or cure autism or cure Alzheimer's because these diseases have still not yielded all of their mysteries to us. But with a lot of these large-scale brain projects underway, I think we are going to be getting much closer to be able to uh, targeting specific brain regions with specific drugs and specific uh, brain stimulation and other kinds of modalities uh, that may help us uh, significantly reduce the burden of these diseases. How will the trend of what we will call the quantified self, uh, tracking our physical, mental, emotional states uh, through technological tools, play into all of this that you're describing? Uh, especially in an aging population? Well, it's a great question because we live in a knowledge economy where really our IQ and our brain power is going to be really important. Uh, And then, as you pointed out, uh, we are an aging society, and especially in countries such as India and China, uh, where the older demographic is rising very rapidly, you're going to see a big jump in the number of people with uh, conditions such as dementia and strokes. So ultimately, I think what we want is a measure of our baseline brain health, and I will refer to that as our brain number. What's your brain number? There are a number of digital health tools um, that have been launched that are going to allow us to quantify our brain health in ways that were not possible before. So there are two key metrics, of course. One is what is your cognitive power, and the second is what is your mood? So uh, mood is, of course, an indicator of whether or not someone has depression, whether or not someone's happy, whether or not someone is uh, enjoying quality of life and and able to work in a state that's called as flow. Uh, Cognitive abilities, of course, uh, range the span from IQ to memory to judgment to reasoning to language, executive functioning abilities, etc., So we now have tools. For example, in the U.S., um, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has cleared three different tablet and smartphone-based tests to allow us to assess our own cognitive abilities and to track them over time. So much like what a pedometer can do uh, when someone walks or when someone exercises, these tools will allow us to track our brain abilities over time. And certainly, once we know our own baseline, If there are substantial deviations from the baseline, for example, if you notice that your cognitive abilities have dropped, uh, you know, 20% or 30% from a year ago, then that may be a sign for you to go uh, get yourself checked up with a doctor. I don't think we're at the point where we're going to be diagnosing ourselves with Alzheimer's or uh, autism or schizophrenia at our homes, but I think these tools will give us early warning signs. Isn't there a risk of people making mistakes by interpreting their data without the scientific background to do so correctly? Correct. As with all digital self-help tools, there's a lot of false positives and false negatives. None of these tools are perfect because you can't just diagnose um, Alzheimer's or, you know, depression or anything like that with just a single number. You have to put it into the context of the overall person's health. There may be multiple causes. You know, they could be hormonal changes, vitamin deficiencies. A person may not be sleeping. A person may have had a small stroke. Uh, So these require a little bit more of a uh, medical evaluation than is possible with a simple digital health tool. 
And the second risk, of course, is you don't want to scare people with, uh, you know, with false positive results and, you know, because a lot of people uh, may have a sort of a lower than normal memory, you know, for for simple uh, non-sort of disease-related reasons. You know, you could be having a stressful day. Maybe you didn't sleep as much the previous night or maybe you're just having a bad day. And sometimes with these tools, um, you can't make those kinds of judgments because they sort of uh, just give you a number. And and so, yes, so that's one risk. The other risk, of course, is uh, in privacy and uh, in terms of who has access to these numbers. Uh, you know, every time you test yourself uh, using a smartphone, you have to realize that the app maker has that information and maybe your phone company has it and maybe the one that's providing the software, you know, whether it be like Apple or Google, uh, may all have access to that information. Uh, so uh, how do you restrict that data and how how do you make sure that that data is not misused or hacked? I think that's going to be a very important uh, issue that's not been fully resolved. And the third is the issue of citizen science. In other words, could you share those data in a responsible manner to facilitate science? So, for example, about three years ago, um, a, a group of us working with a company in San Francisco created something called the Global Neural Lab where something like uh, uh, 40 million people from 180 countries have agreed to share their brain testing data for researchers to use and analyze. So it has both pros and cons. This kind of uh, self-testing, quantified self-data is a very powerful tool to enable science in a crowdsourced manner, but at the same time, data privacy is going to be very important to make sure that bad actors are not hacking it and misusing it. Uh, this ethical questions that you just mentioned, uh, how did discussions between decision makers in Davos deal with them? I think everyone is struggling with it, but everyone is very excited about the potential for brain science to dramatically impact society. So virtually all of the technology leaders, whether it be the CEO of Microsoft, the CEO of Baidu, uh, Paul Allen, whether it be uh, uh, Elon Musk, uh, whether it be the CEO of IBM, Everyone is embracing brain science and cognitive science as a fundamental bedrock for how almost all smart gadgets and the Internet of Things is going to be based on. So brain science is going to drive artificial intelligence, and it's also going to drive the flip side of it, something that's called intelligence augmentation. So the better we get at brain science, the better our deep learning and machine learning algorithms are going to be, and the better our personal assistants are going to get. So the next generation of Alexa is going to learn how to think exactly like the human cortex. And once it starts doing that, um, then it becomes sort of a seamless way to augment human intelligence because... The amount of information that's coming uh, in every field, whether it be in medicine, for example, there's something like 2,000, 3,000 publications every day coming out just in my field of brain health. No human being can keep up with it. So what we need is brain science to then teach an artificially intelligent companion that can then process that information the same way that I would process it, but like in a fraction of a second, and then just feed me the most useful nuggets uh, from that particular analysis. So I think everyone is very excited about the positive potential and the positive impact it's going to have on the fourth industrial revolution, but of course... People are worried that if your artificially intelligent robot gets too intelligent, then maybe it'll take over from the humans. And that's kind of the uh, the worry that uh, hopefully it's not going to happen anytime soon. 
having interviewed a number of AI experts, they also agree that they shouldn't worry us that much yet. It's, it's quite far out. But does it worry you as a brain scientist that uh, these intelligent agents, as they enter our day-to-day -day lives, we start losing some of our cognitive abilities, such as our use of memory, etc.? I think in the future there's going to be no such thing as human memory or human IQ. There's just going to be a sort of a combined IQ and a combined memory of the human brain plus the artificially intelligent machine. So it's going to be a blended IQ and a blended memory. Yes, I think we will change in certain ways. I mean, and we have changed in every industrial revolution. You know, um, people say when the calculator came out, we lost our math abilities. Yes, but we were able to do math a lot faster, and that helped us achieve other breakthroughs. In science. And the same way when the computer came out, people said, you're going to forget to learn how to write on a piece of paper. And yes, many of us now have lost, lost the art of handwriting. But at the same time, the computer made so many other things far more efficient. Uh, and, and so there are always pluses and minuses. And, and yes, I think the more we rely on, on search, um, the amount of physical information we store in our brain probably uh, is going to decrease. And it's, it's probably true that, you know, we're not going to be like the old Roman emperor that could memorize the names of 5,000 of his soldiers. We're going to become, on the other hand, the parts of our brain that are important for executive function are going to maybe double in size because ultimately we will then become the masters at knowing how to process information rather than having to physically store information. So so I think uh, uh, it's going to be good, but I think it's a good thing that our brain is so flexible that different parts of the brain can adapt themselves and, and this process of neuroplasticity um, I think is going to um, be very strongly influenced by how we use our brain uh, in generations to come. This really comes across as a huge step in human evolution. Uh, are you afraid that this might create two different species of people in a way? Uh, one, uh, those that have access to these technologies and has their cognitive abilities change radically, and the other of those that cannot afford it or don't have access to it? Completely. I think uh, it has a major risk that uh, some of these advanced brain technologies and artificially intelligent tools will increase the divide between the rich and the poor, between the advanced societies and the not-so-advanced societies, and it may lead to further marginalization of uh, the poor disadvantaged people who can't afford to buy some of these smarter technologies. And that's a risk that I think it's going to be very important for um, public-private partnerships and uh, organizations such as the World Economic Forum, OECD, to try to sort of uh, foresee and create a framework to ensure that technologies help us and don't hurt us. So we recently wrote a blog together, myself and two colleagues from OECD, where we laid out a framework for how um, governments can anticipate coming technology and come up with anticipatory uh, regulatory strategies to ensure that these technologies are well-tested in terms of their safety risks. And also, we make sure that um, these technologies are made available across you know, society rather than just being available to the rich. This sounds indeed like a very important undertaking so that we manage to unlock the incredible promise that these discoveries that you described us will present. Uh, Murali, thank you very much for taking the time today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on your podcast. That was Dr. Murali Doraiswamy, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Duke Institute for Brain Sciences. 
My name is Rigas Adzilakos and that was all from this episode of A Glimpse into the Future. <laughs>